Hello and welcome to All The Right Notes, the BBC Music Magazine podcast. This week we're discussing The Lark Ascending, Vaughan Williams' evocative and much-loved work for violin and orchestra. It regularly tops lists of Britain's very favourite classical music pieces, yet, as we will see, there is perhaps more to The Lark than its languidly bucolic image suggests. I'm joined today by writer and broadcaster Andrew Green to discuss this magical piece of music, its genesis, and its many moods and interpretations. Andrew, hi. Hello there, Steve. Good to talk to you today. So, yeah, let's begin with the reasons perhaps behind the Lark Ascending's enduring popularity. It's often thought of, I think, as a rather cosy, peaceful, pastoral, quintessentially English piece of music. Is this slightly comfortable view of it accurate, do you think? For myself, I would say that for reasons I don't completely understand, this piece does have enduring appeal. It seems to be a very, very durable piece of music. In the course of my work on The Lark Ascending, I mean, I can think of a couple of days when I listened to every single recording I could actually access online, one after another, and I never actually got bored with it at all. And it is interesting, we talk about that sort of pastoral view of it, which, you know, hooks into all sorts of other pieces of English pastoral music that we're so aware of. But although there were all sorts of comments made about The Lark Ascending by critics when it first emerged, every now and again you would get a critic saying, oh, it's quite a strange piece of music, this, and it's very modern. I mean, the the writer, and she was also a violinist, Marion Scott, uh, called it one of the most significant things in modern violin literature. And that was in 1925, just as the the music became available. So, I mean, it, it is fascinating. Obviously, whether you regard it as modern or conservative or pastoral romantic depends on your point of view, where you're starting from. If you compare it with music of the second Viennese school, Schoenberg and his pals, well, okay, it's very conservative. But if you compare it with the sort of Germanic repertoire that so many British people loved and adored in the 19th century and the early 20th century, well, then it is a bit strange and modern. So it depends where you're actually starting from. Yes, I see. That's interesting, isn't it? So in in different ways, it can be viewed as quite an adventurous modern piece for its time, although even more adventurous currents were taking place in European music at the time. But but yes, not, not quite the kind of comfortable slice of English pastoralism it's often depicted as then. I mean, one thing I would say is it, one is tempted with all sorts of music to try and define its qualities to explain the appeal, it's probably worth saying that Vaughan Williams would have absolutely hated that idea. I mean, to to sum it up, I think one would say that he felt that he wrote music of feeling to appeal to people's emotions. And if you start over-describing in words, then you lose the magic of music. And let's take a quick break to hear a short excerpt of that magic.
That beautiful version of The Lark Ascending was performed by violinist Tamsin Whaley-Cohen with the Orchestra of the Swan and conductor David Curtis. It's a 2014 recording from Signum Classics. I like what you say about he would have been resistant to interpretations in that way. Steve, he would not have been listening to this podcast. I absolutely guarantee it. He would have hated the idea. Uh, that's a shame, but no, I quite I, I respect his stance on that. Let's talk about it. I mean, he might have resisted analysis, but I think it's quite interesting to talk about the emotional landscape of the Lark ascending. Do you hear? Do people commonly hear a particular kind of emotional landscape, or is it a kind of piece that is open to various moods and interpretations? Well, I think that this is the wonder of the Lark Ascending. Okay, this is true of all sorts of pieces of music. Yes, people hear different things in it. But perhaps this is a more extreme example in that when I've lectured about the, the Lark Ascending, I quite often ask members of the audience what mood they hear in the, in the music. And I'm always amazed at the huge range of views that they have of it. I mean, you get one end of the spectrum, you get joy and ecstasy. And at the other end, you've got melancholy, sadness, and then in the middle, it's nostalgia. I well remember one member of an audience uh, in Australia, a woman put her hand up and said, I hear danger. And I thought, well, what does that mean? But she heard that. But, you know, this this is the glory of music, and this is latches on to what I said about Vormley was previously. He would have said, great, all those moods, everybody owns this piece of music in their own way, and that's how it should be. Yes, indeed, exactly. Open to all sorts of emotional responses, which is definitely part of its enduring fascination, I think. I've listened to it and, and taken away different moods on different occasions. I think one of the moods you mentioned, there is a, or there can be heard a melancholy. And I wondered if that's present, is that coming from, some people have said, is it a given the date of its composition, is it a reference to the gathering kind of storm clouds of World War One, or does it hark back to some other lost English idyll? What, what do you think about that one? Yeah, well, well, Vaughan Williams is in the corner here listening to that. He's saying, oh, I'd rather you didn't answer that question. Well, look, I think when we talk about the influence of the Great War, we have to say that the evidence that there is indicates this was written just before the Great War. Uh, okay, there's a build-up of angst in Europe over many years leading up to the Great War, but the Great War itself, it all comes to the boil very, very quickly. So to argue that the, so there are sort of pre-echoes of the war in it is a little bit uh, dangerous. Who knows, ultimately? Only Vaughan Williams really knows. I mean, I tend to think that if there is deliberate melancholy or sadness in it, it may well who knows, have something to do with the long-term effect of what used to be known as the Great Depression before the 1930s came along. This ghastly agricultural depression, which started in 1875, it had a lot to do with imports of cheap food from abroad being much, much more accessible. Lots of detail we could add there. And basically, the British agricultural community was 
desperately affected in all sorts of ways, especially young laborers and farmers were disappearing to the, the, the towns. Far few people are actually working on the land because a lot of the land's got to be left lying fallow in this situation. And the particular thing that Vaughan Williams would have been acutely aware of would be the threatened loss of all sorts of traditions and customs in the countryside, whether it was, you know, furniture making or dialects is one dimension of this. And also, of course, the thing that particularly interested him, the threat to folk song, the threat that folk song would be dying out. You know, he was acutely aware of this. Once he tuned in to the idea that folk song was threatened and it had to be collected, he went for it and he collected something like 800 folk songs and or variants of folk songs between 1903 and the outbreak of war. So look, if there's melancholy, it could have been something akin to that atmosphere in Thomas Hardy novels, where you sense this threat to the whole agricultural way of life and a sense of nostalgia for what used to be and, and which is disappearing now. Um, you can't really overestimate how far-reaching this agricultural depression was. And, and in a sense that the Great War, I suppose, helped the situation a little bit because more food had to be produced actually on the island rather than importing it. But up to 1914, it was a desperate situation. And everybody was aware of this. I mean, just, just by reading the news, you would know about it. There are royal commissions about this agricultural depression and a, a threat to a whole way of life is, is there in front of everybody's eyes. Yes, I see. So on some level, it could be, it's, it's almost like a kind of elegy for a, a vanishing rural lifestyle. Elegy is another of the things that the words that people use when they're trying to describe the Lark Ascending to me when I've been lecturing about it. But no, that's fascinating to know that its origins go back much further than, as is sometimes seen, a, a kind of a look at the threat of war, which, as you say, was actually too recent a thing probably to have figured in it much. Well, I mean, the, the business of the connections to the Great War, I, I'm not going to get all, all fierce about this, but yeah, I mean, I've spoken to various professional musicians who perform The Lark Ascending, and this idea that it is a Great War-influenced work it's out there and it, it, it sort of needs eradicating, really. I mean, it is logical because the work wasn't first performed until 1920. So, you know, you, you can sort of see why people might, might think that. Yes, it was revised a little bit, it seems, after the Great War. But fundamentally, it's a pre-Great War work. And let's not go into the detail of the evidence there unless you really want to, Steve. But the evidence indicates that it's a pre-Great War work. Yes, no, fascinating. I'm also interested in terms of its kind of genesis. There's the famous, that we all know and love, the violin and orchestra version. There's also a version for violin and piano, isn't there? And I'd be interested to hear a bit more about how those two developed, which came first, which was performed first. Well, I mean, I really don't want to sound like a, an overbearing and, and severe music professor on this one, but... It's quite clear from the evidence that this was written as a piece for violin and orchestra. Where does that information come from? Well, when it was first performed, it was performed with violin and piano. Mari Hall, 
the dedicatee for whom it was composed, with Geoffrey Mendham in Shirehampton Public Hall near Bristol. But what does it say in the concert programme? The work's described as romance for violin and orchestra, brackets, arrangement for violin and pianoforte. And then it says the accompaniment for this work is scored for strings, woodwind and two horns. The pianoforte version has been made by the composer himself, who has very kindly given permission for the work to be performed without orchestra on this occasion. And the actual manuscript, what we presume is the manuscript used for that concert, basically gives you the same information. So it's it's a work that was written for violin and orchestra, but it was first performed violin and piano. And you can argue, I would guess, that it prefigures those uh, other occasions when Vaughan Williams would like to hear works, orchestral works, in reductions for piano, he would invite friends round and they would listen to the latest symphony being played on the piano or four hands on one piano or what have you, so that he could get some idea of how, what it felt like, what it sounded like, and his friends could have their say. So in a sense, you can argue that that's what's going on at Shirehampton Public Hall. It's like a test run, but, you know, only Vaughan Williams would really know about that. Um, Now, tell us a little bit about the origins of the piece, how it germinated in Vaughan Williams' mind. Well, this has got everything to do with the brilliant young British violinist, Mari Hall, who's largely forgotten today, but she was a real star of British music with an international career. There's some evidence that Vaughan Williams may have met her around about 1908, but the meeting that is particularly interesting. The evidence suggests that they met in Italy, almost certainly on the Italian Riviera, in January 1914. And the evidence indicates that she played, probably privately on that evening, in the presence of Vaughan Williams and somebody else who is simply called a friend. And after that, Vaughan Williams was inspired to write the Lark Ascending, because he was so impressed by her playing. Whether there'd been the germ of an idea in his head before this, I I don't know, but this seems to have been the spark. And we also have a fascinating bit of evidence, which dates from 1968. Murray Hall's Stradivarius violin was sold 12 years after her death by her daughter, Pauline Baring, who was a pianist herself. And the Times reporter who wrote up the sale of this Strad at Sotheby's let slip the information, which he must have got from Pauline Baring, who was present, that Mari Hall had been playing unaccompanied Bach on the occasion that we're talking about. Now, which piece of Bach might this have been? Well, we certainly know that Mari Hall was playing the famous uh, Chacon at this time. Why is this interesting? because what do we have in the Lark Ascending but three effectively solo cadenzas at the beginning, in the middle and the end. And if you want to be very particular about it, you could say that the start of the Lark Ascending goes up gradually as the Lark ascends. And you can hear also in the famous Bach Chacon, the sort of gradual rising of the melodies. So the fact that she was playing 
unaccompanied Bach on this occasion in Italy is of relevance to what the Lark Ascending sounds like. That's fascinating, yeah. Echoes from various times. And, um, and so that was uh, the, the brilliance of Mari Hall was a key factor. There's also the poem of the same name, The Lark Ascending, which was clearly a, a major inspiration and fed into Vaughan Williams' conception of the piece. Can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah, one must never forget that he takes the title from George Meredith. You know, it's not just the lines from the poem that's placed at the top of the score. The very title of the piece is George Meredith's title. Um, I have seen a, a blog post by somebody claiming to be a relative of Mari Hall that suggests that she put the idea of the Meredith poem to Vaughan Williams. I've tried to establish whether or not that could be the case. Uh, we don't really know. What we do know is that Vaughan Williams certainly read George Meredith. He was, uh, of course, a, a, one of those composers who was incredibly well read. And George Meredith was one of the writers and poets that he actually read. One way or another, we have to assume that this poem meant a great deal to him. The question is, are the lines at the top of the score just sort of vaguely referential? Or should we read the music into those lines? Again, only Vaughan Williams can really say. At the beginning of the poem, Meredith describes the skylark rising. He begins to round. He drops the silver chain of sound. So we get this image of the lark both rising and singing. Silver chain of sound of many links without a break, typical sort of skylark sound. But then when we move on to the second section, it's got everything to do with the effect that the skylark and especially its song has on humankind below. For singing till his heaven fills, tis love of earth that he instills, and ever winging up and up, our valley is his golden cup, and he the wine which overflows to lift us with him as he goes. And what do we have in the music at the start? We have the skylark, the violin, on its own. Then we find the skylark suddenly sounding a bit like a folk singer, and then in comes the orchestra, and gradually you have this impression of the lark above, humankind below, interacting with each other. Sometimes they swap the melodies. And especially towards the middle of the piece, you get that very folky tune. Da, 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 dee, da, 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 above which the lark sort of extemporizes. So in that sense, you would say that Vaughan Williams is painting an oral picture of the words in 
the poem. And if we then move on to the last two lines that Vaughan Williams quotes at the top of the score, referring to the Skylark, till lost on his aerial rings in light, and then the fancy sings. Of course, that's uh, described in the music, the violin going higher and higher. And anybody that's been out into the fields watching out for skylarks and listening out for them, on occasion, you will completely lose sight of the skylark above. And yet still you can hear the sound. So, yes, the lines that are quoted from the poem make sense in relationship to the music. Whether there's more in the poem that one could extract is another matter, probably for another day, which I could talk about forever. Yes, but fascinating to know they, they inhabit the same the same world, don't they? And the, the relationship between man and the, the bird is reflected from the poem and into the music with its division of orchestra and violin. That's fascinating. I think that I think the baseline comment you have to make is that this is about the wondrous sight and sound of a skylark and the way it interacts with humankind. I mean, that's in it. That's it in a nutshell. Nothing more sophisticated than that. Yes. Nicely put. Is the lark ascending a quintessentially British piece of music? Is that is that a British sound world we're hearing, or can it be heard with equal perception by different audiences around the world? Uh, I mean, it's so difficult, this, isn't it? It certainly travels extremely well. I think you've got to be slightly careful in answering that question. And if you're not careful, you assume that every country around the world has a radio listening public that is passionate about the lark ascending. And I'm not sure if one can absolutely prove that. Certainly around the English speaking world, that seems to be the case that people maybe because of their British heritage latch onto it. I don't, I don't know. But for one thing, I can count something like 15 or 16 different nationalities of violinists who've recorded this from various parts of, of the world. Uh, they obviously care deeply about it. And one lovely example that shows how well it travels, uh, I don't know just how many years ago it was, but there was an orchestra from, I think, the Black Townships of South Africa, a young musician's orchestra, who took this on tour to South America and uh, actually combined it with some sort of dance presentation. And, well, and there you have it, you know, orchestra from the Black Townships taking the Lark Ascending to South America, probably to an audience which, who knows, uh, had never heard it before. And it seems to have gone down uh, extremely well. You know, it is it is a, a, a tricky one, this. I, I I want to say the Lark Ascending does transcend national boundaries because it speaks to, as I said at the beginning, it speaks to human feeling in a very, very direct way. Very basic human emotions of joy, sadness, nostalgia, melancholy. And I think it's beyond some sort of national definition. Yes, and that's good to hear. That can be interpreted using dance on a South American stage in that way. It translates in that way. That's lovely. To finish, I'd love to hear more about a project that you have spearheaded called Larks Ascending, where you're very much taking the piece's legacy into the fields and meadows of modern Britain, I think. Um, can you tell us a little more about this project? Last year, of course, it was 150 years since Vaughan Williams was born. And with one or two other people, I dreamt up the idea of marking the anniversary 
by using the popularity of the lark ascending, but going beyond it into a matter of concern for all of us, and that is conservation, basically, the things that we're increasingly worried about, about uh, where climate change is taking us and where human activity in the countryside has changed the environment for wildlife. And so we used the idea of the Lark Ascending as a hugely popular piece. Could we get people across the country, and who knows, abroad, going out into the fields and recording Lark Song and submitting it to the British Library, to their archive of uh, environmental and wildlife sounds, as an archive of Lark Song recorded at different times of day, in different weathers, different times of year, as a database that people can actually access for whatever reason into the future. And by doing this, it's drawing attention to the situation where Skylark numbers have declined drastically over the last 50 years. Just one example of a farmland bird which has suffered from changed farming practices in, in the countryside. And of course, there are all sorts of other examples beyond bird life as far as this is concerned. So that's, that's what we were doing. We hope that bioscientists may want to listen to these recordings because they're made at different times and in different situations, time of day and weather, and, and analyze the song to see how it might change from uh, situation to situation. What we're also certainly hoping is that composers will take an interest in Skylark song. One of the things that the British Library did many years ago was to put on their website an example of slow down Skylark song. And once you slow down this magical stream of sound that Skylarks produce so magically, you can sort of, well, you can, you can hear the structure of the song, if that's not too anthropomorphic a phrase, but you can see just the shapes and the micro melodies within the song. And we're hoping that this might appeal to composers to actually write new music, which use the song and along the way, draw attention to these conservation issues, which we surely all care about deeply. And let's hear one of Andrew's recordings of Skylark's song made in the Chiltern Hills in southern England. So why this widespread appeal of the lark ascending to people all over the world? I wonder if it's, it's got something to do with the sense of timelessness that there is in the music. And I'm, I'm thinking of the Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis as well. Uh, both of these use the ancient modes or, or scales, not the normal eight-note scale that we normally associate with, with, with classical music, but five-note scales in, this, in the case of, uh, of the Lark Ascending. And there's something about the modes which takes you out of time into a sense of the eternal in a strange sort of way. And I wonder if that's one reason why it appeals to people. But also, of course, one shouldn't forget the sense of freedom that's evoked somehow in this music. 
this lark is up there flying free, singing as it wishes in the most captivating manner. And there are we with our busy lives, with our worries and our cares. And somehow this music takes us out of that. And I suppose one example of how the music does that, and this has been the case now for decades, is, is so many people choose to have uh, the lark ascending played at their funeral. And sometimes it's, it's uh, uh, even played live. And that sort of makes the point, really, that just as people meet to grieve, they're offered a piece of music which gives voice to their grief, but also takes them beyond and above it. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Into some other quite serene and contemplative place. Yeah. I was interested to note that more female violinists than male violinists played this piece uh, between the wars. And that got me to thinking, might there be something intrinsically feminine about the lark's mood or, or playing style demanded? I mean, this, this is very, very interesting. Yeah, sure. I, I totted up the number of performances by men and women between the wars. Overall, it's something like 50 players, and the majority of them were women. It's a woman, Isolde Mingus, who actually makes the first recording of The Lark Ascending. Mari Wilson gives the first proms performance. Some of the most ardent enthusiasts for the piece were Yeli Daranyi and Sybil Eaton, who played it all, all over the place. I'm not saying that there weren't prominent violinists like Albert Sammons and Billy Reed and people like that who, who played it, but it is a thought that it was felt to be more of a piece for a woman to play. It's not so obviously a work of technical wizardry. It requires sensitivity and a particular sort of feeling. I suppose the other thing one needs to remember is that uh, I don't know exactly how far it would still have been the case, but when Mari Hall gave her London debut in 1903, uh, she played this extraordinary concert where the whole concert was three works for violin and orchestra. And one of those was the Paganini first concerto. And that would have been regarded as a work for a man to play. I guess there were various works in the repertoire which were regarded as masculine, strongly fibred pieces of music that only a man could really play. And you, you just wonder if perhaps it was written by Vaughan Williams with, with feminine... OK, he wrote it for Mari Hall, but was it written with feminine sensitivity behind it? It's an impossible question to ultimately answer. And of course, one's got to emphasise now, there's no gender discrimination when it comes to uh, performing or recording The Lark Ascending. Everybody can bring something to it. Um, yeah. we've, talk, we've talked about all the different moods that are, can be detected in the music. Well, there's so much there for different violinists of whatever their gender may be to actually explore and present before the public. That's been a wonderful and really illuminating chat, Andrew. Thanks very much. I feel you've shed great new light on this piece of music, which, you know, is often seen as a as a comfortable staple. But there's so much more to it, isn't there? And so much more to uncover and be moved by. So thanks so much for your many insights there, Andrew. Been great to talk. You're very welcome, Steve. Thank you very much.
So some fascinating insights there from Andrew Green. Now joining me in the studio to discuss The Lark Ascending are my BBC Music magazine colleagues, Charlotte Smith, Jeremy Pound and Michael Beek. Hello. Hello. I want to begin by asking you all whether you are fans of The Lark. Andrew said he listened to many recordings in one day and never got bored of the piece. Could you say the same? What do you all think of The Lark, Jeremy? I don't think I could listen to it all day and listen to lots and lots of recordings like that. I think that probably would drive me to despair. But certainly I enjoy it. It's a, I think it's, it often gets sort of maligned for being overplayed, but that's not Vaughan Williams' fault. Mm. And I just enjoy, I think that you can read things into it. You can read a lot into the orchestral background, what was going through Vaughan Williams' mind. It's a lot more complex than people think. And I, can, I enjoy it on lots of different levels. Mm-hmm. Good to hear. Well, I enjoy it on a very basic level. I just think it's very beautiful, actually. Very uplifting, (laughs) very soothing. If I want to relax, it's something I might listen to. I want a different opinion of The Lark. I wonder if I'll get one. Okay, as a violinist, I think it is overperformed and overexposed, but I do love it. I'm not saying that I don't, but, you know, it does get performed a lot. But I think there's a few reasons for that. I think, for starters, it's actually not the most difficult violin piece to play, and it's only 15 minutes long, so it's not that long. So, you know, I'm not saying that you don't have to be a really great violinist to interpret it, because you do, but it's not Tchaikovsky. So you can you can share it in professional settings, amateur settings, all sorts of different spaces. So mm. I think it's probably for that reason that it is, is, is as exposed as much as it is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Yes, interesting. And it, of course, it does. It is exposed and it does. It is much loved. It does regularly top lists of uh, Britain's favourite pieces of classical music. Do you think in some ways it, 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 its reputation is uh, is unjust in some ways? It's, it's tagged as this kind of cosy, bucolic chocolate box slice of English pastoralism, almost as the hour equivalent of a constable painting on a biscuit tin. Do you think it's <laughs> it's unfairly tagged as a as a cosy English piece of music? Yes, I think there's a lot more going on, isn't there? It is the mm. you well, you can probably read too much into when a, a work was written, but this was written just before the 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 beginning of the First World War. And also the poem itself, which is taken from what which is based on, yep. is kind of speaks about the decline of Britain, the British way of life as we know it, doesn't it? Um, and I think you I think you need to know about that, really, before you actually listen to it. Those, as Michael says, you can just, on its own own merits, and just enjoy it as a, as a piece. Mm. But when you know the background of both the poem and the time it's written, maybe that tells you a little bit more. I always think the orchestral um, accompaniment does have that sort of dark storm clouds feel yeah. to it. I, I, I actually feel it's quite an insecure piece, because the violin line is very vulnerable mm. compared to what you've got kind of going on below. Yes, true. Mm. It almost seems as though it will, it will break at any minute under the tension. Yes. That's it. I mean, I was reading musicologist Christopher Monk because mm. um, I was thinking about what is it about the harmonic textures that mm. actually make it, you know, give it that sense of lost innocence, nostalgia, all those things, that yeah. kind of darkness that sort of under, underlies it. And I think, you know, Vaughan Williams, he, he uses modal harmonies, pentatonic scales. He avoids tonic and dominant cadences. So actually that means that we're never anchored fully in major or fully in minor. So there's mm. this sense of instability about it. And I think that probably contributes to it as well. Yeah, indeed. Mm. Mm. Which leads us on to the emotional responses to the piece. Andrew talked about one of its great... Uh, charms one of its great uh, benefits is the amount of different emotional responses people can pull from it 
How does it make you all feel if you listen to the lark? Do you feel a sense of melancholy, a world disappearing? Do you find yourself reveling in an English cornfield? What's the mood for you? There's something quite wistful about it, isn't there? But mm. certainly there is melancholy there, and I think that's surprising to most people who think they know it. As I say, I find it very beautiful, but equally, yes, it is. A, there is a kind of sadness there. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yeah, It's it's got that, it's this sort of idea of this fleeting moment in time, yeah. I think. And because... It's very beautiful, but because it's so short, that's what makes it sort of bittersweet. Mm, so, indeed, yeah. Yeah. It makes me nervous, if I'm being honest. Really? Right. Yes. <laughs> <true. laughs> it's this the whole vulnerability of the solo line the whole time. It's a kind of being detached from the, the orchestra. It's sort of, mm. I always think it's something which puts me on edge. Right. Not in a bad way. You, know? <laughs> you can listen to music which puts you on edge. For sure. And still relax with it. But I'd, ne- I'd, I'd never see it as a cosy piece that way. No. I think it's, you listening to every single note that the violinist plays, it's yes. quite those kind of filigree turns. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, Will it preserve its thread? Yeah, it's a, it's a one to really kind of concentrate on, in my Definitely. opinion. Definitely. Mm. Add that to the book of emotional responses to the lark. That's wonderful. Thanks, chaps. So we're going to play out with an excerpt from the recording of the lark ascending performed by Tamsin Whaley-Cohen accompanied by the Orchestra of the Swan and conductor David Curtis on Signum Classics. Thank you for listening to All the Right Notes. <laughs> 